This is Stavros Yanuka welcoming you back for another episode of Wise Words. Our guest on this episode is Richard Davidson. Richard Davidson is the Chair Professor of Psychology and Psychiatry at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's also the founder and director of the Center for Healthy Minds. His work focuses on studying the brain and its role in regulating emotions. Through his work, uh, Richard Davidson believes that we need to exercise our minds just as much as we need to exercise our bodies, and that this is critical a critical component of overall well-being. He also believes that what is popularly known as mindfulness can be taught, practiced, and measured, and he's a strong advocate of its introduction into the education system. And with that, I give you Richard Davidson. Richard Davidson, welcome to Wise Words. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Richard, I've uh, been doing some research on, on the work for which you are best known, uh, which is around well-being and wellness and its importance to, uh, to education. So I wonder if we can start uh, just by uh, explaining to the audience, uh, what do we mean by wellness and well-being? You know, are they the same thing? Are there differences between them? Perhaps that's a good place for us to start. Sure. Often wellness is used to refer to a broader constellation of factors than just well-being. Wellness can also include physical health. Uh, what we mean by well-being is, is really optimal human flourishing, uh, being able to harness the full capabilities that every human being has uh, the potential for when she or he comes into the world. It's really a different emphasis than uh, treating symptoms or uh, the absence of, of illness. Uh, we're really interested in what's right with people and nourishing those qualities more so than simply what's wrong with them. And the kind of qualities which are important for well-being are qualities which we think are central to education and uh, will help build the foundation for uh, all other forms of learning. So, for example, one of the constituents of well-being in the framework that we've developed we call awareness, which includes the capacity to regulate attention. Attention is the uh, really the core building block for every other form of learning. William James, in his famous treatise in 1890, The Principles of Psychology, said that an education which can improve this faculty, and he was referring to attention, would be the education par excellence. So that's just one of many examples. How did you personally get involved in this work and how did you become interested in, in the topic of wellness and well-being? I was interested in... A central question when I began my career, really at the start of my graduate education, it was a simple question. And the question can be framed this way. Why is it that some people are more vulnerable to life's challenges and others are more resilient? And how can we promote or nudge people along this continuum uh, toward increased resilience? And that question still is central to a lot of what we do 
And in the early part of my career, I focused on the brain mechanisms that were associated with vulnerability, understanding sort of the adversity side of life. Uh, And then um, in 1992, I actually uh, had a pivotal experience that altered my career. I first met the Dalai Lama and he challenged me and said, look, you're using tools of modern neuroscience to study stress and anxiety, depression, adversity. Why can't you use those same tools to study positive qualities um, like, like kindness and compassion? And, and it was a wake-up call for me. Uh, and I didn't have a very good answer to him other than that it's hard to do that. But, you know, when, when scientists, including myself, first began to study anxiety, That was hard too, and I think most scientists would agree that we've made some headway in understanding the um, brain mechanisms associated with anxiety. So that's really uh, some of the early history. So so where is the science now in terms of of being able to, to pinpoint how both negative and positive emotions come into being? Well, I would say we've made considerable headway in understanding that and particularly understanding uh, how emotions are a central part of virtually all other human activity. Emotions were once viewed as something that was opposed to rationality and, and its primary function was a disruptor. Uh, And we now understand that that's really uh, not true at all. Uh, Certainly emotions could be that, but they they serve um, very adaptive functions. You know, when we make complicated decisions in life, such as should should we marry a certain uh, spouse or what kind of career do we wish to pursue, those kinds of decisions are not made on the basis of a cold cognitive calculus. Rather, they're, they're really made on the basis of emotions. That's right. And, and uh, isn't it true that uh, even fairly simple decisions like, you know, which uh, brand of shampoo should one buy? If you try and compute those decisions purely using rationality, you may, may end up unable to make a decision. In other words, there's always an emotional component at play, even in the most simple types of decisions. Absolutely. And of course, Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work showing that economic decision-making tasks indeed are not rational but um, in that sense, but rather are informed by emotion uh, and that we cannot account for um, human decision-making strictly on the basis of uh, a rational calculus. Uh, and so, and it's also the case that we know that patients who have damage to particular parts of their brain that are important in emotion uh, actually uh, are individuals who end up making irrational decisions. So clearly the emotions in that case play an important role in us behaving more rationally rather than less rationally. If we go back to the importance of all all, all these insights that we're gaining from from neuroscience, from psychology, if we turn now to to education, how far along are we in terms of, of really understanding the implications of this this knowledge on how we teach and learn? Well, I would say that uh, for some of the components of well-being that we and others have studied, there's a, 
a really uh, solid corpus of scientific evidence, uh, and for others, uh, maybe a little, maybe a little less so. But one of the components where I think there is substantial evidence is attention, as we were earlier. And, you know, if, if a child is not attending to information that is being presented either by a teacher or in a book or through media, the capacity of the child to actually learn is severely compromised. And attention in that quite literal sense is the fundamental building block for every other form of learning. And so in my view, it's incomprehensible that we do not spend more time in our educational systems educating attention. I believe we do know a lot now about how to do that. We know about the brain mechanisms that are associated with that. We know that certain kinds of simple mental exercises to train attention, train the brain, that is, they change the brain in ways that promote enduring behavioral changes. And that these changes have important implications for other kinds of learning, including performance on standardized tests. Um, there are good, good data showing that, improve, that you can get substantial improvements on standardized tests simply by training attention uh, without any training in the specific content domain of the test. So uh, this is really important, and we're trying to do everything we can to increase the awareness of this body of scientific evidence and bring this out into the world directly in education. So when you speak about simple mental exercises and and the like, you are, uh, I believe, speaking about mindfulness practices. Am I correct? Yes, uh, certainly in part, uh, absolutely. Although I think that you know we we tend to have a, a stereotype of mindfulness exercises that has been conveyed in the media and so forth. And one of the I think important questions is uh, how these kinds of exercises may be modified in age-appropriate ways to bring them uh, into different educational settings. And so uh, when we talk about mindfulness exercises, we're not necessarily talking about any kind of formal meditation practice. There may be all kinds of other ways to train these qualities. Uh, and I think this is where additional scientific research would be valuable. So can- can you give me a couple of examples, Richard? Sure. One of the strategies that we use, we've developed a curriculum for preschool children that is a mindfulness-based kindness curriculum. And one of the things that we do in uh, as part of that is we have kids listening to sounds. For example, uh, if I ring a bell, I can ask kids to pay very close attention to the sound that they hear, and as soon as they no longer hear the sound, to please raise their hand. And what you can find is that for the roughly 10 seconds during which a sound is audible, you can have a classroom of 20 kids or even more completely still and really attentive, and then their hands shoot up, you know, after the sound diminishes. And they can taste the beneficial qualities of this kind of calm attentiveness. So that's one of the exercises that we use. 
Uh, very differently, in older kids, we've developed a, a game for kids who are uh, in the middle school years, uh, in at least middle school in, in the U.S. These are children in seventh or eighth grade. It's a game that they play on a tablet. And what it involves is simply, it's, it's a mindfulness game, um, but, what it, but it's, it's really made to be age appropriate. And so what the task is for children is to tap a tablet each time they breathe in, and then to tap the tablet with two fingers every nth breath, say every sixth breath. And what happens is that they can tap the tablet um, with each inhalation, um, but then they often lose track of the sixth breath or the ninth breath, whatever it might be, and their mind begins to wander. And uh, the way the game is structured, the number of consecutive sequences that they get correct is rewarded, and it's rewarded by populating a garden with beautiful flowers or other environments that they can choose to be in. Uh, And uh, the kids really enjoy playing this, and it's a very simple kind of game. And they, again, can taste the quality of calm alertness, which is really a requirement for being able to successfully play the game and be rewarded. I mean, it it sounds to me that essentially these are, if you will, the starting or the the, the building blocks for meditation. And implicit in, in, in your earlier comment was that somehow meditation gets presented in the media in perhaps a, not a negative light, but as, as some sort of new age uh, fad. I mean, there is no evidence to suggest that meditation is actually very good for all, all kinds of people. So why are we not embracing it more formally, if you will, through the education system? Well, that's a great question, and uh, certainly I would promote it in those ways. Uh, I do think that it has some unfortunate surplus meaning, and some people do associate it with a particular religious tradition or in a very new agey kind of way. What we are trying to promote is the idea that fundamentally you can think of this as mental exercises that scientific research shows changes the brain and improves our capacity to regulate our attention and more broadly to um, promote self-regulation. But yes, it fundamentally is based on ancient traditions that I think are present in every religious tradition that's been examined. It's not unique to any tradition, but I, I think it's important to underscore the fact that the value of these practices does not depend upon it being done in any specific religious tradition, but it can be done in a um, more secular way that would, I believe, feel comfortable to a person, a child, in any religious tradition. And again, how how strong is is the scientific evidence that that indeed these practices have positive benefits? The scientific evidence on attention, I would say, is very very strong, with, with a with a few caveats. One is that people often ask, well, how how much 
practice is required before effects are observed? And also, how long do these do these changes last? And um, I often reflect back to a questioner who asked this. If they, if you were doing physical exercise and had a coach uh, who was helping you train and you went to the gym every day and you did this for a month, you know, I think most people would see a change after a month and see improvement. However, we all know that if you stopped exercising after one month, you would begin to revert back to the way you were and the effects would begin to dissipate. And I think the same is true for these kinds of mental exercises. Uh, We don't have really good long-term follow-up data, but everything that we do have at the present point in time suggests that the preservation of these effects depends upon a person continuing to practice. And so there's nothing really magical about this. These effects will only endure to the extent that we continue to incorporate this into our everyday life. One of the things I often say is that it's It's kind of like personal, uh, the analogy is with personal physical hygiene. When human beings evolved on this planet, we weren't brushing our teeth initially. This is something that virtually every human being on the planet has learned. And we recognize that this is important for our personal physical hygiene, and we do it. And uh, my um, strong conjecture is that if the majority of the population of this planet spent even as little time as we spend brushing our teeth, nurturing their mind in these ways, the world would really be a different place. It doesn't take that much if we do it on a consistent basis. Uh, and so that's kind of what we're thinking about and uh, and how we're thinking about it. You know, other than the sort of the, the links with particular religious traditions and, uh, and the, the kind of the, the new age faddishness, is, is there anything else do you think that's sort of getting in the way of more widespread adoption of these practices? I think that there there is another element that we haven't spoken of, and that is training the teachers, providing teachers with uh, access to these practices so that they understand them from the inside. And we also believe that this will be beneficial for teachers. One of the things that we're doing is exploring the impact of bringing this into teacher education in a formal way. So we we actually have just finished a major study of teachers in training in a school of education just before they actually go out into the full-time profession while they're what we, in the U.S., it's called pre-service teachers. Uh, we're, we're looking at a number of different outcomes. And one of the things we're particularly interested in, because it's such a problem here in the United States, is um, implicit bias. And a lot of the achievement gap in the United States between blacks and whites is at least in part attributed to uh, implicit bias. Uh, Black children are disciplined with harsher and more punitive disciplinary practices, even after carefully adjusting for socioeconomic status and those kinds of things, and educational achievement. And those differences are driven by implicit bias. So one of the things we found is this kind of training in teachers actually reduces implicit bias. And those, those measures of implicit bias 
uh, we actually had shown persist for at least six months uh, after the training. And of course, this goes back to what I talked about earlier. And uh, we see stronger preservation of training with continued practice. Very, very interesting. Uh, we've spoken a lot about awareness or, or attention, which is which is just one of the, the four skills that you identify as critical to learning. The others are connection, insight, and purpose. Can you say a little bit about, about each one? Sure. So connection is really about the qualities which promote successful interpersonal and social relationships. Qualities like appreciation and gratitude and kindness, uh, and also having a positive outlook. Empathy also is part of this. And so uh, there's a lot of research that suggests that healthy social relationships are a key ingredient of well-being. And one of the things we see uh, a lot uh, in the West is pervasive loneliness and depression. Uh, and so the qualities that we think are important for connection really are antidotes to that. So that's connection. The third component is insight. What we're referring to here is this. We all have a narrative about ourselves, a kind of story in our minds about ourselves. These are self-beliefs. And at the very extreme, there are people who have very negative self-beliefs, lack of self-worth, lack of self-efficacy. And they actually take these beliefs to be a veridical description of themselves. Uh, And that is a prescription for depression. And so part of well-being is understanding the nature of this narrative and developing a healthier relationship to the narrative. What the narrative is, is a constellation of thoughts. And uh, in the cognitive therapy literature, this is called decentering. Kids begin to develop this narrative uh, in the first decade of life, uh, and it becomes really important once they reach adolescence. And of course, adolescence is the time when depression will often first manifest. Uh, And one of the things we also know is that there is a global gender difference in depression that begins express itself right around adolescence. For adolescents, the rates of depression are comparable in boys and girls. And after adolescence, the rates double in girls compared to boys. And a lot of this has to do with this uh, self-defeating narrative. And so developing a healthy relationship to this narrative is so important. Just to clarify, this is, this is the stories that we tell ourselves about, about us. When we talk about exactly. it, now, it's our description and our understanding of who we are. Precisely. Yeah, so the last um, component is purpose. There is a lot of research which suggests that having a strong sense of purpose, a kind of direction toward which we orient our lives, <clears throat> is very important. Uh, and is associated with ports of well-being. As we age, this quality becomes an important determinant of physical health. Uh, There are data in the scientific literature that indicate that a sense of purpose is the single most important psychological predictor of longevity 
among people in their 70s and 80s. Uh, and that's after very carefully controlling for all other factors. Uh, and a sense of purpose also begins to develop in children, uh, particularly in adolescence. Uh, part of education, we believe, should include helping kids discover their sense of purpose. It's not giving them a sense of purpose, but rather helping them appreciate that a sense of purpose really is an important component of life. Uh, and uh, uh, to discover within themselves what their direction is, where, where their sort of true north might be. Uh, and that can often be a catalyst which uh, really sets a, an adolescent on a healthy developmental trajectory that has very long-term beneficial consequences. I, I mean, intuitively, all of this makes a great deal of, uh, great deal of sense. If I take purpose, though, isn't there a, not a danger, but isn't, isn't the difficulty here that... Uh, we, we may be steering kids towards d- developing some some sort of grand vision, or you know, pushing them into into sort of having to identify uh, something that they're passionate about that they may or may not be able to to pursue. I don't know. I don't know if I'm making making much sense, but well. Part of helping children identify a sense of purpose is really also being realistic about it. You know, someone who says that they want to become a basketball star and is short, there are certain qualities which you know, will really constrain the realization of a particular aspiration. You know, and so it may be, uh, particularly early in life, more generic, like contributing to science, helping other people, ensuring financial success for those who are less capable or um, less fortunate. And so you can frame a sense of purpose in a more generic way, the specifics don't have to be so well defined. That can emerge. Uh, it could be, you know, playing a musical instrument. So there are all kinds of things. It's really a lot of it is about figuring out what we can do to be of benefit, not just to ourselves, but also to others. In whatever sphere we have capability, in whatever context is appropriate. But that quality of generosity is something really important for well-being. Uh, there's so much research that suggests that being generous to others in whatever ways are possible, and this doesn't mean financially generous, it could be generous in all kinds of other ways, is really an important ingredient for well-being. And, and that, that again speaks, I think, to, to, to what you were describing as, as connection and healthy social Yes, absolutely. How important is physicality in these in these kinds of relationships? And by, by physicality, I mean, you know, being in the same space as a person, uh, as opposed to say talking on the phone or or interacting through you know a particular medium. You mean being physically proximal? Proximal, correct. Yeah. Um, It's a great question, and there is some evidence to suggest that. There are certain elements of of in-person connection which are really important for optimal development. We know that starting with a mother's relationship with her infant, uh, that touch 
is extremely important and actually is biologically necessary. You know, there's a famous series of studies that was actually done here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which would never be approved today because of ethical considerations. But it was a series of studies done with monkeys, the famous Harlow experiments, monkeys who were reared, who were fed, you know, a healthy diet and who were cared for uh, in terms of their health, but who were deprived of touch, failed to develop normally. Uh, and there's other, all kinds of other evidence uh, that is consistent with that. And so, you know, some people in the tech world have predicted that by 2030, 70% of human interaction will be virtual. And that frightens me a little bit. You know, even in adults, you know, touch is important. When, when, when we shake hands with someone, when we give them, you know, uh, a hug, just uh, in, in, in the course of just natural human interaction, I don't mean, you know, an intimate hug, just a welcoming hug. Yeah, yeah, no, pat on the back or... Yeah, exactly. Those kinds of human touch experiences, I think, are really important. And there's a whole science of the impact of touch on our brains, which clearly indicates, particularly in children, that touch is critical for optimal human development. And, you know, there, there are these um, studies done of kids raised in Eastern European orphanages, the original ones were done from kids in Romania. You know, those kids were fed. Uh, they were not deprived in terms of nutrition. Uh, they were not malnourished, uh, yet they failed to develop adequately. And it really, a lot of it has been traced to basic human touch. They were deprived of normal human touch. So what do you think, what's been then the impact of the proliferation of digital technologies and, and, and in particular social media. Do, do we now have at least some empirical understanding of what, what it might be doing uh, doing to us? This They call it connectivity, but it, it seems to run counter to everything that you're describing as, as, as sort of real connectivity. If you will. Yeah, it's it's a great question, and uh, there are few empirical data points which are uh, appropriate to to mention. One is there are good data showing that if you take children today and you compare them to the same age children fifty years ago, cohort fifty years ago, on the same standardized measures of attention. So 50 years ago is before any of this digital technology, of course. Um, what you see is that kids today are more distracted. They perform worse on certain standardized measures of attention than age and gender matched and socioeconomically matched children 50 years ago. Uh, and there's good evidence for that. So that's one problem which has been documented. Secondly, um, more to your point, is about loneliness. Uh, and despite the fact that uh, digital technology is supposed to promote social connectivity, there are data showing that it actually is associated with increased loneliness. Uh, those are two data points which I think are, you know, extremely important. But I would say that the problem is not with the technology itself. 
but rather how the technology is used or our relationship to the technology. And the technology is not going to go away. Uh, And so I think the challenge before us is how can we teach children to use the technology, A, in a more responsible way, and B, even in a way which can actually enhance human flourishing rather than undermine human flourishing. And I believe we could do this. I really do. And I, I, I certainly believe at the very least that we have a moral obligation to try. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think we, we, can't, uh, we can't simply put up our hands and say, well, uh, the technology is what it is and we'll just have to live with it. I mean, we do, we do have choices that we can be making. I'm a little bit less generous though in, in this in this regard with the technology because I think there is <clears throat> there is growing evidence that at least when making design choices, something as simple, for example, as notifications and how how these technologies are in a sense designed to capture your attention and, and in, in some instances even to fragment it. I, I think those are design choices that could have been done differently. You know, with again, I'm not attributing any any sort of malice behind these choices, but again, the incentives are such that they feed off off of our attention span, and therefore they're, they're designed, in, in a sense, to have us coming back for more. You know, more likes, more. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that, and I think that they can be designed with more sensitivity about this. Uh, I've got another maybe three or four minutes. Yeah. Okay. No, that's that's fine, uh, Richard. I mean, we we could go on. I think each of these could be a podcast in in and of itself. So maybe we'll have to schedule another conversation to uh, to wrap up. But before we go, then, what's the best way for listeners to find out more about your work and about your writing and, and your ideas about how we can incorporate mindfulness into education? Yeah, so we would love to share more of our work with listeners and you can go to our website and if you search for Center for Healthy Minds, you'll find us. The website is investigatinghealthyminds.org and uh, it should be quite easy to find. And the kindness curriculum that I mentioned in this podcast is available free for anyone who wishes. You can download it from our website. All of our publications are available free on our website. And there's a lot of basic information about our work, which uh, is quite accessible there. So that's the Center for for healthy minds. Yes. That's terrific. Uh, Richard Davidson, thank you very much for uh, sharing your wisdom with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to uh, seeing you in person uh, at the next WISE meeting in November. I look forward to it as well. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank you.